Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together. Miles. I'm Miles. What's up guys? It's Sean. Hope you're having a good week. We are so excited that you guys are here and if you are new, thank you for joining us. Forensic Miles is an unofficial companion podcast (laughs) to the cult favorite show Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? Nola definitely thinks so. Oh yeah, she's she's eager to get started. Today, we're going to be covering the Forensic Files episode, Blanket of Evidence. So, I guess we should just get right into it. Nola is obviously going to be very present in this episode, so just get ready for that. So, today we're going to be covering the murders of two women. Two women whose murders were so similar that for a while, Franklin, Indiana felt that they might have a serial killer on their hands. We're going to start with Sharon Myers. She was a 26-year-old married mother of a 13-week-old son whose name was Jesse. Her husband's name was David. She worked at Arvin Industries' Gladstone plant in Franklin, Indiana in the Human Resources Department. On May 13, 1997, Sharon was seen in the parking lot of Arvin Industries at around 6.15 a.m. She never went into work, and she was never seen again. David reports her missing to the police at 10.46 a.m., only hours after she was last seen. The police immediately classify it as a missing persons case. So this is something that we don't often see. Usually, for some reason or another, people wait a long time. Or the police department doesn't really pay much attention to did, the report. Did somebody from um, Arvin Industries like call and say that she wasn't at work? Or how did he know? To be honest, I'm not really sure how he found out that she was missing. I'm assuming it has something to do with Arvin um, Industries because we'll see later that they really were supportive of the family and trying to figure out what happened to Sharon. Um, So I'm not really sure. But either way, he does report her missing and it's immediately classified as a missing person case. On May 21st, police receive a tip and search a field along Rocky Ford Road for Sharon's personal items or Sharon herself. Unfortunately, they don't find anything. David, her husband, is not a suspect of the case. He had kind of already been cleared by this point. um, And now he starts to beg the public for information to help solve 
the disappearance of his wife. On May 29th, police announced that they are pursuing the case as a possible homicide, and they say that they have a suspect in mind, and this person is known to Sharon. But they still have not found her, and they still have not found any physical evidence or clues about where she could possibly be. At this point, the community is desperate for answers, and Arvin Industry does what they can to help. Originally, they offer up a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person who is responsible for Sharon's disappearance. Later, they actually raise this reward to $25,000, which is pretty incredible. This was, you know, the company that she worked for. In July, police start to give a little bit more information about the suspect that they have for the disappearance. And it turns out that it's actually an Arvin Industries employee named Jason Hubble. Uh-oh. Yeah. Company's not looking so good now. Not great. So a witness comes forward and basically says that Sharon and Jason had gotten into some sort of argument about his benefits. Supposedly, some of his payments were late, and Sharon was the one that was handling his account. As of July 1997, the police had no updates. They hadn't found Sharon dead or alive. They hadn't found any clues, and the case was basically, you know, starting to get a little bit stalled. Now we're skipping ahead a few months to September 27, 1997. At around midnight, police discover an abandoned car at a stop sign. The car's lights are on, the keys are in the ignition, and a wallet is on the passenger seat. Immediately, police know that something's wrong. I mean, you don't just get out of your car with the key in the ignition and the lights still on, and your wallet on the front seat. Yeah, definitely going to raise some quick flags. They don't see anybody around. Um, and so they immediately tried to track down who this car belongs to. After a quick run of the license plate, they find that the car belongs to Kelly Ecker. Kelly Ecker was an 18-year-old woman who, you know, was basically just beginning her life. She was extremely smart. In high school, she was a member of the National Honor Society, which is a nationwide society for students in the U.S., The selection for students to become members is based on scholarship, leadership, service, and character. So she was really kind of a well-rounded student. In 1997, she was a freshman student at Franklin College, which was like basically the local liberal arts school. And she received an academic scholarship to be there. After some investigating, police were able to piece together Kelly's movements on that night. At 10 p.m. on the night of September 26th, Kelly left her job at Walmart and went to meet her boyfriend, Anthony, and his mother. They went shopping until about 11.15 p.m., and they all left, driving separately in different cars. This was the last time anyone saw Kelly alive. Now there were two missing people in the same general area of Indiana, and the police were concerned, to say the least. Police find a scratch on the back bumper of Kelly's car, and they come up with a horrifying suspicion that somebody intentionally hit her to get her to stop, pull over, and get out of the car. Yikes. They search the area for four days to try and find Kelly or any clue of her disappearance, but they weren't able to find anything. Four days after the discovery of Kelly's car, Kelly's body was found. Two women were walking their dogs in Brown County, which is about 40 miles away from, the, from where the car was found. They found her nude body in a ravine. Along with her clothing, Kelly was also missing jewelry and her shoes. So there are a couple different 
um, you know, things that I found about this. Some say that she was partially dressed. Others say that she was completely nude. Um, so I'm not 100% sure, but either way, she was partially nude, she was missing her shoes, and she was missing all of her jewelry. Either way, it's not good. No. It's terrible. Yeah. Kelly had been strangled to death and had been found with three things around her neck. A gold metal chain, which is assumed to be part of a necklace, a shoestring, and a strap off of her overalls. So she had actually been strangled with, this, with her own shoestring and a strap from her own overalls. Kelly had also been shot in the forehead. Interestingly, though, the bullet had been made from wax, not lead. Hmm. The medical examiner suspected it was from a stun gun used in slaughterhouses. So her cause of death was not this shot to the forehead. It was the strangulation. Jeez. Kelly had also been raped, and they were able to collect a sample of DNA. They believed that the murderer had bumped the back of her car, lured her out, and then most likely shot her or just, like, forced her into his car at gunpoint. They believed, based on the way her body was laid, that the suspect had thrown her out into the ravine and that it was just a body dump. The crime scene was somewhere else. This is not where she had died. They found white fibers and olive triangular fibers on her body. And we all know from forensic files, if we're super fans, that triangular fibers typically come from a carpet. Mm. And so they thought most likely a car carpet, something from the interior of a car. Investigators believe that she had been wrapped in something white and then put into a car that had olive carpet. Fly larvae were found on the body from the green bottle blowfly. They land on the body almost immediately after death. So this was kind of able to help them pinpoint when Kelly died. They believe that she was killed on the night of her disappearance, either late on the 26th or early on the 27th, but definitely while it was dark and before sunrise. They, of course, questioned Kelly's boyfriend, Anthony, and he was a suspect for a while. However, he did have an alibi. Anthony said that he went to a convenience store on his way home, and even though they couldn't find any witnesses, he was cleared because he did have a receipt from the convenience store on that night. Since, yeah. Since they weren't able to find any more information, they decided to reach out to the public and announce that they didn't know the whereabouts of Kelly's shoes. This was previously kind of not told to the public. They wanted to know if anyone had any information. They went on TV and showed the exact pair of tennis shoes that Kelly had been wearing that night to see if they could spark anybody's memory. Three weeks after they initially reached out, a tipster called and said that there was a pair of shoes that matched the description at the Atterbury Wildlife Preserve, which was about 20 miles from where Kelly was found. When they went to go and see these shoes, um, they were consistent with the shoes that Kelly had been wearing, and they were actually missing a shoelace. Uh-oh. So they were found in this, like, bathroom, in the women's restroom of this Atterbury Wildlife Preserve. They kind of thought that maybe this could be where the crime scene was. So they began their search of Atterbury Wildlife Preserve, looking for any additional clues. They, you know, were really convinced that this could be where the crime scene was. However, the park was more than 33,000 acres, and ultimately they weren't able to find anything. One week after the discovery of the shoes, the police get an interesting call. A woman's body had been found 
in the same park. On Sunday, November 2nd, 1997, an employee of the Indiana Department of Natural Resources at Atterbury Wildlife Preserve discovered the skeletal remains of Sharon Myers. It was ultimately confirmed by dental records. This was the same relative area as the shoes were found. So think about it. 33,000 acres. And the remains plus clues from two separate missing person cases are found in the same place. Yeah. It seems a little bit more than a coincidence. Oh, yeah. After six months of searching, Sharon had finally been found. And she was also strangled to death. Also a pretty uh, steep coincidence. Yeah. Investigators couldn't help but see similarities between the two victims. However, other than the fact that they had died in the same general way, the two were otherwise not really connected. They realized, though, that they might have a serial killer on their hands. After a little more investigation, they were able to determine that Sharon and Kelly's murders were actually, thankfully, unrelated. Jason Hubble was convicted of Sharon's death and was found guilty of one count of murder and one count of criminal confinement. Jason was sentenced to 75 years in prison. A witness testified that Jason had, you know, like I said before, been having trouble getting his insurance benefits and that Sharon was acting quote-unquote cold to him, which is a ridiculous reason to kill somebody. They suspected that he abducted her from the parking lot and strangled her to death out of anger. So do you think one of, one of the two killers of these women strategically chose where they put where they placed those dead bodies to try and like throw off suspicion and make it seem like there was a serial killer i really don't think so because the shoes were there before they had found the body uh, and the body, the body had been, been there a, while a long time there. so yeah so uh, no i don't think so just a, a very thing. very strange coincidence yeah. yes Finally, Sharon's family had some answers, and her case was closed. You know, although the case was closed, obviously the family was left picking up the pieces of what happened. At the time her body was discovered, her son was only nine months old. So it, it was a really heartbreaking sort of situation that he was in. And I have a quote here from her husband um, that was in the Republic newspaper. And, he, and they say, when the time comes to explain to Jesse all that happened to his mother, David said his description of her will be a simple one. She was a good mother and loved him very much. So it's really a heartbreaking situation. He will never know his mother yeah, because sorry. of what this one man did. Sharon's mother, Catherine, and the rest of her family found comfort in butterflies, which was one of Sharon's favorite um, things. Catherine said that two weeks after Sharon's disappearance, a butterfly had landed on her shoulder while she and Sharon's father were on a walk. It stayed on her shoulder for three hours. She said that she knew the butterfly was Sharon, and they kind of used the symbol of the butterfly to get them through their grief and the trial. Although the case is solved, you know, it's a horrible ending for a woman who had so much ahead of her in life. But the story isn't over yet. They still needed to solve Kelly's case. Since there was no evidence that Hubble had anything to do with Kelly's death, they, you know, kind of had to move on and see what other evidence they could find. Once again, they turned to the public for help. 
This time, they got over 800 leads. Obviously, not all of them were much help, but a few were. They received a call about a man who had been sitting in a truck with a camper in it in the Walmart parking lot during the period of Kelly's disappearance. But not just then. He had been sitting in the parking lot almost every night. Witnesses said that, you know, he might have a connection to Kelly. They said that they had seen him looking into a maroon car, which matches the description of Kelly's vehicle. So now they're thinking they've got this man who was looking into the car or that was most likely Kelly's on the night of her disappearance. And this man's name was Jeff Wagner. They were able to track him down from surveillance and they decided to kind of start asking him questions. At the time of this questioning, Jeff was 37 and and in the middle of a divorce. When asked why he spent so much time at the Walmart, Jeff kind of was honest, and he said to watch and meet women, which is creepy, but honest. He said that he would go up to three times a week. He told the investigators that he didn't know anything about Kelly's disappearance and willingly gave his DNA to be compared. After they were compared, it turns out that there was no match. A second tip came in, and this one was about a man named Scott Overstreet. They said the man might have information about Kelly's murderer. Although Scott Overstreet had no criminal record and at first claimed to know nothing about the murder, once police started questioning him, he started to change his story. He said that his brother Michael asked him to drive him and his van to Atterbury Wildlife Preserve. While he was driving, he noticed an unconscious woman covered with a blanket in the back of the van. Hmm. Yeah. He told his brother not to hurt the woman, but he left Michael and the woman at the park and drove away. Michael had said not to worry about it and that he wasn't going to hurt her and that he had just planned to leave her there so that she would get lost in the woods. But either way, Scott left him there. Either way, they were doing something wrong. (laughs) Yeah, not up to anything good. Scott leads the police to the park, and they start to find evidence that this woman was, in fact, Kelly. They find Kelly's jewelry, which I believe includes a locket. Michael Overstreet was married with five children and also didn't have any priors, so it was kind of weird that he would do this. Although they started to find some interesting facts about his life. He had been in the military for an extremely short time. I mean, three months. And he was then discharged from the military due to psychological reasons. And these reasons are because he was diagnosed with psychological deterioration and schizotypal personality disorder. When they questioned Michael, he denied any involvement, stating that he didn't know who did it, but he was absolutely not involved. They decided to search his home, and they found a 22 caliber rifle and several unusual shells. The bullet portion was made out of, guess what? The wax. Wax, which matched Kelly's injuries. They found a white blanket in the home, and... You know, upon investigation, they found that the white fibers matched the white fibers that were on Kelly's body. They found green nylon trilobal fibers from the carpet in Michael's van, which matched the triangular fibers found on Kelly's body. And they also found a weird bump on on Michael's van bumper. 
And when they measured this, you know, scratch, it was perfectly the same height as the bump on Kelly's car, on Kelly's back bumper. Prosecutors believe the same story that they had said before, that Michael followed Kelly home on her way back from work. Oh, I forgot to say, Michael was known to have shopped at that Walmart. So they believe that he was at the Walmart, followed her home on her way back from work. He bumped into her car. They stopped to inspect the damage. He fired the wax bullet that didn't kill her, but left her unconscious. He put her in the back of his van, called his brother to drive him to the preserve, and walked her into the woods where he proceeded to rape and strangle her to death. They still had a couple questions left. One of the big ones was, why did Michael leave her shoes in the bathroom? Yeah. There was, they couldn't come up with an answer for that. I mean, it was weird. They were in the women's restroom. And it was obvious, they were obviously left there after she had died because they were missing the shoelace. Yeah. And you're probably not going to be walking around barefoot in the woods. No. It is believed that days after he murdered her, he returned and moved her body to the ravine, you know, where he threw it down into the ravine. They knew Michael was guilty, but one of their other questions was, Was Scott more involved than he was letting on? Ultimately, they decided that the answer was no. Michael's DNA was the only DNA that was found on Kelly's body, and it matched Michael absolutely. It was not Scott's DNA. It just seems odd. Why would you go through all this hassle to then be like, oh, yeah, let me, I'm going to call my brother to give me a ride and just drop me off? Yeah, it definitely seems odd. And but Scott had to know more of what was going on. He might have. He might have. He absolutely might have, but he didn't let on, and he didn't end up being convicted of anything. Actually, he was given immunity to testify against his brother in court. Michael was convicted of murder, rape, and confinement, and on July 31st, 2000, he was sentenced to death. And this is where things start to get a little bit wonky. I mentioned before that Michael had had previous mental health issues, and the mental health issues did not go away. In fact, I don't know that they ever got better or anything, because he was constantly known to hear voices, see people, and see demons. Mm. So in 2013, Michael applied for post-conviction relief, which would have spared him from the death penalty which was lethal injection. However, this was denied. But Indiana Supreme Court did authorize a post-conviction relief on the basis of insanity. In 2014, Overstreet was officially ruled not competent to be executed based on mental illness. So he was seen by doctors in, while he was in prison and was officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. The lawyers basically said that he was delusional and had no rational understanding of why the state of Indiana planned to execute him. They basically said that the death penalty would be meaningless for him because he, quote, believes he's already dead and that's the delusion that he has. Wow. So he's very severely sick. Um, and obviously there's something going on there, but a lot of people were understandable understandably not happy with this ruling, including one of the prosecutors that had actually worked on Kelly's case. His name was Brad Cooper. And he said to the star, and I don't think this was actually an official statement. I think this was a text message 
like a text rant to somebody that worked at the star and then it ended up being published. Not 100% sure about that, but I think that that's what happened. I'll also just say right before I read the quote that it the case was switched from a judge to a different judge um, for some weird reason, like the first judge was sick. Um, so it was sent to a judge that wasn't in the same county. Um, so here's his quote. He said, I was angry and suspicious when this case was sent to a distant judge who is not accountable to the Johnson County citizen, citizenry or a grieving mother who couldn't afford to drive up for the meeting. The idea that this convicted murdering monster is too sick to be executed is nothing short of outrageous and is an injustice to the victim, her mother, the jury, and the hundreds of people who worked to convict this animal. He ended up getting in big trouble for saying this um, and had a disciplinary hearing because of these comments. There were a lot of ups and downs in this case, and, um, you know, a lot of people were really upset about this, but they did have an answer to what happened to Kelly, and there was somebody in prison for her murder. I have a quote here from her mother, and she said, I still believe in the judicial system. He's going to spend the rest of his life on death row. Maybe, just maybe, with this illness that he has, he's going to suffer more than if he was put to death. I think that's powerful really a powerful quote yeah probably not too far off from the truth yeah probably will yeah and so that is the end of our episode and um these were really tough cases i think these were two women who really had their whole life ahead of them they were so young and it's really a shame that you know they weren't able to live the happy life that they deserved definitely Well, we thank you all for being here for our episode 16, and we hope to see you next week. We release new episodes every Tuesday. Every Tuesday. Mark it down. Yep. So we'll see you next week. See you guys. Bye.